Hello, welcome to Fueling the Transition, the podcast series from AFRI Management Consulting, where we talk about everything to do with decarbonization, decentralization, and digitalization of the energy sector. And one of the things that is very important, of course, when thinking about the future decarbonization is understanding where the future of energy markets is headed so people can make their investments based on on views of the future and understand also the range of uncertainty that exists out there. So I'm very pleased to have with me joining us today, Director from the UK Office of A-Free Management Consulting in Oxford, and that is James Cox. Hello, James. Hi there, Matt. And James, you're responsible for the market analysis service line. So uh, this sort of service line that looks at the fundamental analysis, all the forward-looking views from AFRI, that's uh, that's right and square in your in your area. Yeah, that's right. So my job is really to try and predict the future all the way out to 2050, um, which is, is, as you can imagine, a bit of a challenge given given all, well, not just the uncertainty, but also the potential sort of fantastic developments that are out there in terms of new technologies. So uh, a challenge, but a very, a very interesting, exciting one. So I tend to, when I go to dinner parties, rather than say that I, uh, I'm really into uh, the details of electricity markets, I tend to tell people I'm an energy futurologist. And I think probably you, you might do the same. I think futurologist is a, is a fine way to describe my, uh, <laughs> my career. I was worried that people might ask you if you're a futurologist, Matt, how, how good are you seeing the future? But, uh, but yeah, more of that later on, I guess. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So our Q4 2020 results have just been released for Europe, looking at European energy markets and also in the detail of European electricity markets. We considered the whole energy space, but I think the developments in electrification are very interesting it'd be you know good to know what the future is going to hold in that regard and what is most different in 10 years time from today yeah so i guess, guess the thing about 10 years time is an awful lot of life is happening in the next 10 years and a huge amount of transformation uh, as you know as, as european nations are pursuing this drive to to net zero um i mean just starting on the you mentioned electrification there just starting on uh, on demand if you like that uh, you know there was going to be some pretty rapid adoption of electric vehicles uh, you know, the UK has come out with this target of banning all diesel vehicles that has now come forward by five or 10 years. So, you know, the next five to 10 years, expect most of your friends maybe to be driving electric vehicles. And on the back of that, of course, demand rising. So that's great news if you're, uh, if you're generating, if you're in generating assets, particularly if they're generating assets that run overnight, because of course, most of the charging of electric vehicles will probably happen overnight because of course it's cheapest. So that's one change is, you know, this, this electrification. The other change is on the generation side. Um, you know, we've got all these coal and gas-fired power stations and, and the future is not looking bright for coal. Probably something we all agree is, is a good thing. Um, so coal, somewhere around 100 gigawatts on the European system at the moment, that should collapse to somewhere around 25 gigawatts by 2030. So a lot of coal plant closing and replacing all of that with this massive influx of renewables you know, some of it is going to be merchant. Uh, quite a lot of it is going to be underwritten by government subsidies or uh, long-term contracts. But really, things like solar roughly doubling in the next 10 years, wind going up by 50%, uh, onshore wind and offshore wind, 
going up by a factor of three. So really quite a dramatic transformation in the generation landscape as well. Do you know what's the year of our last coal-fired generator in Europe, according to our analysis? It's around. It's somewhere between 2035 and 2040. Certainly we assume that everything by 2040, uh, coal is gone. Um, it would be politically unacceptable. So, and of course, you know, these plants are the ones that are in Eastern Europe. So it's the Czech Republic and particularly Poland um, and, and other Eastern European countries where they'll be holding on. Another, I mean, another interesting one, you know, sooner in the next 10 years is really how long, you know, gas-fired generation will hang on, particularly new gas-fired generation. You know, if we, if we see this rise in demand from electric vehicles, um, a recovery after coronavirus, we could see a requirement for new generation coming online and, and the question is if, if that's late 2020s next six seven years maybe 10 15 years time would it be feasible to build a gas-fired power station in 10 years time uh, given of course they emit quite a lot of co2 so yeah the, those sort of interactions between how much you know even if they're very profitable how much how much of the last few thermal power stations can get built um, of, of uh, co2 emitting power stations uh, is pretty critical to to the the evolution of of the electricity sector. And when we look out, are we are we net zero by twenty fifty in Europe in our say in our our sort of base case central view of the world? No, so uh, sadly not. I mean, our our base case is of course our our best view of the future. Um, we do we do search our souls on some of these decisions, and I'd ideally like to have a net zero central scenario, you know, our best view saying that net zero is what Europe is going to achieve. But there's two factors suggesting that won't be the case. I mean, firstly, net zero is economy-wide net zero. Um, and that, you know, it's hard enough getting the electricity sector to become net zero, but you know, getting industry, uh, so all the um, steel manufacturing plants and the chemical plants, uh, high temperature processes, getting all of these to be net zero, so they can't burn any fossil fuels at all. Uh, is is uh, really quite a quite an enormous challenge. So you know our, our general view is technologically going to be enormously difficult. But also when you get to those very low CO2 level uh, levels, the amount of money you have to spend for the last few tons of CO2 to get rid of it really becomes disproportionate. You, you're down to the tricky to decarbonize industries, and we think that uh, Europe by the 20 you know say 2040 late 2030s. We'll start to seriously look at the amount of money being spent and question whether you should be, instead of trying to you know, make some small incremental improvements to a Europe, which is pretty close to net zero, whether it should spend that money trying to get rid of coal-fired power stations in Indonesia or in Australia or in China, you know, places that might still have uh, really high emissions at that point. So there's two good reasons there that uh, uh, we think Europe won't quite make it to net zero. Uh, you know, it'll make it pretty close, but never, never quite get there well, we'll ne- never get there fully, certainly by 2050. But it could be it could be some direct air capture technology, something like that, which was offsetting the um, the last fossil fuel, or or I guess you know it could be industry with carbon capture and storage with the CO2 being stored. Is that uh, that's a possibility as well? Yeah, that's right. We certainly get you know, what we call BECS uh, biomass with uh, carbon capture and storage. Uh, some of that coming online in our projections. So this is all merchant build, so it's you know, economic to do so because the carbon price is, uh, is so high. But you know, it's only the 10 to 15 to 20 gigawatt range of, of biomass with CCS uh, fitted in our projections. So it's not, it's not huge volumes, it's obviously burning quite a lot of biomass, but um, it's not huge volumes in terms of installed capacity. Um, you know, for reference, Europe is a sort of a 2,000 gigawatt system or so, two, 3,000 gigawatts. So 13 gigawatts isn't a, isn't a huge amount in, in total terms. 
Um, yeah, so so you know, we, we we think 85% for the whole economy would be enormously challenging. Whereas uh, yeah, net zero is something we think would be happening. You know, maybe ten years later, uh, if if we ever get there. Well, does that mean we're we're carbon free in the in the in the electricity sector, for instance, where we've made a lot of strides, of course, with renewables? Yeah, that's right. So, um, I mean, when, when we say net zero in the electricity sector, that means there are some positive emissions, but they're offset by by uh, uh, well, mainly by biomass with with CCS. We don't generally have direct air capture as sort of economic. Um, you know, that's you know, our carbon prices are in around 100 euros a ton uh, by 2050. Um, and at that sort of price, you're unlikely to get direct air capture um, with, you know, even given technology improvements, it's still quite a long way out of the money at the moment. And I guess it's, it's one of the biggest uncertainties or questions that we spend or, and the team spend a lot of time thinking about is how technology costs can move into the future because of course we've seen such rapid falls in in solar and wind over time that it's uh it's it 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 can be one of the uncertainties anyway when looking forward especially out to 2050 yeah i mean it's astonishing really how fast technology costs have fallen in in you know broadly speaking in renewables you know when i started doing this work you know 15 20 years ago or so uh we had the cost of nuclear falling uh, and the cost of renewables sort of drifting down slowly. And of course, what's happened is the cost of nuclear has gone up uh, and the cost of uh, wind, solar, um, offshore wind and so on has, has absolutely plummeted. You know, it's been dropping by 50, 60, 70 percent um, over what we thought it would be, uh, what it was back in 2010 or so. So, you know, the gains in some of these new technologies have been astonishing. Um, and a lot of that, of course, you know, the one thing all of these new technologies share in common, you know, if it's, if it's wind, if it's solar, uh, you know, electrolysis for that matter, um, is the fact they're not you know, one-off enormous power stations. They're lots and lots of little ones. So they're produced in factories, mass-produced on the megawatt scale, and that allows these substantial gains in efficiency and production, you know, unlike very large nuclear reactors that uh, haven't, had, haven't been able to uh, achieve those sort of cost reductions. When talking of nuclear, a lot of discussion, certainly in the UK, about small modular reactors. Do we have anything uh, nuclear coming forward? Well, we've got, we've, uh, you know, in our projections, our view is really the, the, the sort of minimum um, that will be pushed in, in into the market by by governments. So no merchant nuclear. I mean, that won't come as much as a surprise. But um, you know, there's no reason why nuclear couldn't be built on a on a merchant basis if it was you know, could be built uh, on time and cheaply and quickly. But yeah, so we have a, you know, a smallish number of these large government finance projects following in the footsteps of. Uh, uh, well, and, and Hinkley C, and of course um, the Oikolotu, the, the Finnish reactor, and the Flamanville, the uh, the French reactor. So really, our, our installed capacity of nuclear stays very broadly constant um, over time. But it's really the the technology that's been held in place by government support. Uh, and, and you can regard nuclear as a a massive real option, if you like options theory. The idea that decarbonizing is enormously difficult, so you have to do a bit of everything. Uh, and keeping your toe in the nuclear pond, uh, so to speak, of course, uh, is is a good idea given the scale of the challenge because um, uh, wind and solar won't necessarily deliver. And, of course, nuclear might do. Yeah, I'm not sure about keeping my toe in the nuclear pond. <laughs> um, I might avoid. It, it I might, might come avoid. out a different colour to what you put it in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then you, you mentioned electrolysis. So we um, yeah, hydrogen is the the hot topic you know, of the last few months, 
uh, and probably you know a little longer. What do we see for the future of of hydrogen? Yes, I mean all you know, you can't you can't build these vast amounts of wind and solar. You know everyone knows it doesn't it, it doesn't blow wind it doesn't blow and shine all the time. So all this wind and solar is generating huge intermittency in prices, lots of zero prices, lots of negative prices, and lots of high prices, which of course are the, you know this wonderful uh, place to put flexible you know flexibility of one kind or another. So we have sort of 60, 70 gigawatts of batteries coming online. You know, that's the first technology that becomes a merchant, if you like, can be financed uh, off uh, capital markets. And then following that, about 60, 70 gigawatts of electrolysis. And, and really electrolysis, you know, batteries exploiting the, um, the, the low prices and the high prices. Uh, electrolysis is really complementing solar. So in the summer in southern Europe, lots and lots of zero prices during the daytime. Um, and that's when these large, you know, lots of electrolysis units being built and the hydrogen being used well, either to service current demand into heating uh, or, of course, into transport. Um, you know, you're probably not likely to be driving a hydrogen car. Um, it might happen, but it's looking an outside chance now. Um, but a hydrogen heavy goods vehicle uh, looks still pretty, pretty reasonably likely. So that could be the, the dominant technology for sort of uh, high energy applications like long long distance transport. The electrolyzers not being able to run base load, and one assumes here. Well, I suppose if we're decarbonizing the grid in general, perhaps electrolyzers could be taking, uh, you know, creating low carbon hydrogen by taking electricity from the grid as well. Uh, but the cost of producing hydrogen increases, I assume, as the electrolyzer load factor goes down. That's right, Mum, and. Um... You're obviously right. There's sort of two ways you could run an electrolyzer. One is they're quite they're, they're big units. They're expensive to build. You, you ideally want to run it base load. So you can build it in places where electricity prices are always low, uh, like in the Nordics, sort of continuously low, lowish all the time, and run it for long periods of time or run it for shorter periods of time. I mean, I think our electrolyzers in our modelling are coming around around the 40, 50 percent load factors. Um, you know, run it for smaller periods of time, but operate when the electricity price is either zero or negative, uh, even better. So, yeah, so this build in southern Europe of electrolyzers is taking advantage of the fact that basically the fuel is free, um, which is which is a wonderful situation to, to, to be in. And of course, you know, whether they're economic or not isn't just how much it costs them to build. It's not also the cost of the fuel to an electrolyzer. So electrolyzers taking in electricity as its fuel. Um, the other thing that makes it profitable, of course, is how much can it sell its hydrogen for? Um, uh, and that's then all tied up you know, with, with whether you believe a hydrogen market will develop and what value there will be for hydrogen in the future. It sounds like the future you're, you're you know, talking about is one with a lot of renewables and a lot of batteries and a lot of electrolysis creating hydrogen. Is it also the case that there's a lot of demand response? Is there flexible demand helping us to balance this system? Yeah, that's right. Um, <clears throat> I mean, most of this flexible demand is likely to be electric vehicles. Um, your, you know, your average car has got a, a, effectively a big tank, you know, a range of, say, 150 miles at the current 200 miles with current technologies or uh, 200, 250 kilometers for our European listeners. You know, your typical person is only driving 10, 20 kilometers a day. Uh, that means that uh, you, the battery that's sitting there is a much bigger than they typically need for a journey. Uh, and that implies there can be, you know, even relatively small amounts of flexible charging, um, you know, delaying charging your vehicle for a day or two till it's windy again. All of that can really make a substantial difference. So 
you know, rather than supply flexing to meet demand, as the demand would move to meet supply. All of that requires, you know, a fair amount of technology, but none of it is particularly difficult to install. You know, it's smart meters, uh, tick, you know, it's uh, web enabled uh, forecasts and pricing forecasts, all of that's a big tick. And then, of course, something like a smartphone to decide what you're going to do in the next few days and whether it's okay to not fully charge your, your car tonight and wait a day or two. So, yeah, certainly, I mean, most electric vehicles charging overnight will probably be the default pattern, um, but some movement of, of energy from day to day, depending on what the weather's going to do, uh, will, will certainly happen. So I assume if I'm if I'm the sort of person who doesn't, you know, I don't use my car for commuting, or even perhaps if I do and there are places to plug in at work or at the train station, you know, it, it could be that I decide or set a preference and my car is charged for the week on the day that's very windy. Uh, it could be, depending on the pattern of generation, that it charges overnight a little bit just to keep topped up at the at certain times when it's uh, when it's windy overnight. It, it could be flexible in that in that regard. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if 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 it's windy overnight, your car will charge to be fully full. But I guess if it's a very still night, uh, that's the point where it might only fill itself up to three quarters full. Um, on the basis that you don't, you, know, you don't need to drive 150 miles tomorrow, and if you do, you can plug into a fast charger somewhere. So I don't think any of this, this sort of future is outlandish, uh, and I think a lot of people can sort of nod their heads and go, "Yeah, I, I could see that happening." Uh, my smartphone already plans a lot of my life. Why doesn't it just decide when when it fills my car up for me? That make life a lot simpler. But all of that, I mean, the benefit of all of that means that you can put more and more renewables on the system, and you need less and less flexible plant. Uh, in terms of you know thermal plant that's uh, uh, like CCGT's gas-fired power stations and, and peaking plant because demand can flex a bit to help help meet supply. And you avoid building some expensive capacity that gets used very very little, you know, very few hours, which would be hopefully more economically efficient. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's got two benefits. You're absolutely right. You know, it, it avoids building excess power stations if you like, and this this excess capacity. But even more than that, it might may well excess uh, investment in the grid um, you know so underpinning these enormous numbers for loads of uh, wind and renewables coming online uh, is the fact that there's you know people are, are switching from you know gas heating to electric heating from petrol cars to electric cars um, and as a result the distribution networks and transmission networks are going to require an awful lot of investment um, so yeah good time to uh, good time to start looking at uh, distribution networks because there's probably going to be a lot of cable laying going on in the future um, but of course, if people are charging overnight, you don't need more cables. Fundamentally, uh, uh, it's the same amount of it's more energy delivered just over a, a longer period of time. Yeah, and if everyone's got a, or you know, everyone's not owning a vehicle in a town, but they're using a, you know autonomous taxi service, uh, then perhaps the charging pattern's different again, and it's fast charging near a substation on the outskirts of town are trying to maximise use of the vehicles and the capital invested in those as well. So who knows? Yeah, uh, although, that, I mean, that doesn't make its way into our projections. I think uh, I can certainly see autonomous cars arriving, but I would, they wouldn't be our, our base case, if you like. But uh, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You could, a company with some of these technologies, you could see these unexpected uh, or at least expected, but uh, difficult to foresee changes where everyone gets rid of their cars and just hails the robo taxi. Um, I think we're a little way away from that just just at present, but there's certainly a, uh, certainly one possible future. So, talking about you know flexible uh, demand a little bit more, and I was surprised when I saw some of the some of the numbers coming out in terms of the amount of flexible heat because heat demand 
is a very large part of energy demand. Space heating demand is a is a large proportion, and of course, in some countries, it's um, gas boilers in the home. In other countries, it's district heating systems. In other countries, electric heating in the home, and uh, even electric heating in the form of of heat pumps uh, coming in. What's the future? Do you see for uh, that heating demand? Well, I think I mean, I think genuinely the jury is entirely out on this one at the moment. Uh, you know, could you see a future where everything is heat pumps? Yes, definitely. You know, heat pump is what three and a half times, uh, maybe four times more efficient than a you know old old fashioned resistive heating, electric heating. is is hugely efficient. It's a wonderful way of heating. You know, ground source or air source heat pumps are all, all very good for that. But equally, you know, if you, if you look at it, you know, particularly Eastern Europe, countries where it does get genuinely very, very cold in winter, uh, having heat pumps installed would cause demand to spike to really quite exceptional levels. Um, because, of course, heat pumps become less and less efficient uh, the colder it is. So uh, in, in reality, air source heat pumps, you know, uh, heat pumps in general are likely to see quite a lot of a take up. But equally, hydrogen has got so much in favour of it simply because... From the consumer point of view, you do nothing whatsoever. So anywhere there's a gas system at the moment, the consumer doesn't have to even think about it. At some point, it changes to hydrogen, uh, and, and 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 they're very happy. So I think we, you know, the future we see is 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 a bit of a mix. But the reality is that you know, it could go at the moment, given the cost of technology, it could go one way or the other. And I think the reality is because of geography, um, because of cost, because of existing legacy systems, you'll probably see a mix. Uh, of some systems switching to hydrogen, uh, where there's already gas pipelines and, and good infrastructure, maybe cold temperatures, uh, and other systems switching to electricity, you know, particularly where there's where, you know, good existing distribution systems that can take that. Uh, so you know, our, our projections see a bit of a mix in reality, and I think there's a good reason to believe there won't be a dominant technology in this area. Um, a bit like uh, we can see uh, petrol and diesel being, you know, petrol and diesel being replaced by electric and hydrogen. I think we can see you know, gas and coal uh, and oil-fired heating systems being replaced by electric heat pumps uh, and hydrogen in the long term. And of course, the consumer will have to have their burner—you know, whether it's a cooker or a boiler in the home. The, the, there'll be some replacement of the equipment to cope with the uh, with the different gas, and probably upgrades to the gas system to cope with a with a different gas as well. And also because of safety and uh, potential corrosion, depending on what the uh, the gas pipes have been made of in the past. But it's certainly a it, it's certainly a very similar level of comfort and level of experience that these consumers would be getting at the end of that, and probably with very little disturbance or disruption. Of course, we had the similar situation when we switched from town gas or coal gas to uh, to nat. You were going to say you remembered when that happened, man. Really? Yeah, yeah. I think I, I, I think I might have uh, invented the memory for myself, having heard the story so often. <laughs> Can happen. One of the other, I suppose, mechanisms for dealing with this um, more intermittent world is uh, interconnectors. Do we see a big increase in uh, interconnectors between markets between countries? We do. I mean, we see effectively a, a steady increase uh, in interconnector capacity. I mean, the, your fundamental issue with interconnectors, you're absolutely right, you know, they're, they're effective of, you know, there's too much renewables or wind in one market, they export it, and equally they bring in power 
when there's not enough sun or not enough wind. But at the same time, an interconnector fundamentally is the, the easiest way of offending the maximum number of people. Um, it brings almost no jobs and it's strung for hundreds of kilometers across you know, everyone's view. So they're probably the most deeply unpopular uh, investment it's possible to make, at least overhead power lines. Um, obviously, if they've been undergrounded, that becomes less of a problem, but they're vastly more expensive. So yes, I mean, Interconnect is important and you know steady increase across Europe, but uh, the realities of, of sort of the European democracies and planning means interconnection is always going to be difficult to, to make happen, even with newer technologies such as high voltage DC. I mean, a good example of this is in Sweden at the moment, where the north of Sweden is it's very windy in the north of Sweden, so it's wonderful for, for wind generators. Sweden has a number of price areas and as a result of building loads of wind in the north of Sweden, the electricity price reduces in the north. So there's a big price difference between the north and the south. And as a result, you know, electricity wants to flow from uh, where it's cheap to where it's expensive, from, from the north down to the south. Um, but there's there, there are now big grid constraints. These didn't exist in the past, but they exist now because uh, there's too much wind being built in the north of Sweden. And this is all in response to you know, good electricity prices, merchant investment. So, you know, interconnects are needed, but uh, the challenge there is public perception because they are so deeply unpopular. You know, if, if, if you look the way that China's evolving its electricity system, there are very large amounts of high voltage DC cables being strung everywhere. Uh, and that allows large amounts of power to flow and, you know, efficient power flows around the country. But of course, China's not really a democracy um, and the, the local people's opinions don't count. So you've got an interesting you know, in the long term, this interesting tension between what local people want, you know, they don't want a you know, large overhead cable near them, they don't want a wind, uh, you know, wind farm near where they live, versus the requirements of society, which is for decarbonisation. So I think we'll see many more of these, these kind of challenges going forward, where the, uh, the rights of the uh, large number of people uh, against those of uh, you know the locals, if you like. So that's that that's sort of sets out a little bit about you know where things are headed uh, from a from an investor point of view and thinking here either about developers or infrastructure funds. Given what you've seen, where would you be? Where would you be putting your money? I would say over the next ten years, because I think almost the the longer term is a little bit easier to say, oh, well, we know in 2040 to 2050, this is where I'd be putting my money because we'll be further along that decarbonisation journey. And and also because we, I think we know we're going to need all the options out there to be able to achieve what we need to achieve. But in the next 10 years, where would you, where would you place your money? It's always a tricky one because uh, it's always easy to advise, whereas placing your money is uh, ultimately rather harder. I mean, in, in reality, any sector... Uh, you know, if you're investing in wind or solar or offshore um, or, uh, or batteries, any of these sectors, you know, a lot of these are very competitive. There's lots of big players out there um, looking for new projects, uh, competing away margins uh, and so on. You know, and, and the markets are competitive. So, so fundamentally, the thing, thing I'd advise and what we advise our clients is you do need to know the markets very well because there's a lot of money to be made really by exp either exploiting existing rules or knowing what they are how they favor particular technologies and indeed how long that will continue for so you know understanding if you're looking to buy a battery build battery projects understanding what the value is stemming from at the moment uh, which might be reserve what the value might stem from in five or six years time which might be you know, balancing mechanism intraday prices and what the value might be in 10 or 15 years time which might be constraint management 
um, understanding that the you know your your current source of revenue might be short-lived, but there are others that will become available. That, that that's critical, and and uh, we spend a lot of time advising our clients that you see a market opportunity at the moment. Uh, you know, don't assume that will continue forever. Um, if you assume it continues forever, uh, why is no one else competing in that sector? Um, so looking at what the current value drivers are and how they'll get eroded away and then what the next thing will be. Uh, that's the secret to a, to a good investment. Personally, I'd be looking at, uh, you know, well, what I personally do is invest and follow the government subsidies for as long as they last. So that'd be the, the, the first thing I do. Uh, get paid to close existing coal plant down. Uh, get paid to build wind by governments on nice long-term secure contracts. So that's always the starting point. But if you're looking at flexible generation or more interesting things, it's about what's the current, you know, how are you making money now if you built it and, and what's it going to be looking like in 10 years' time? Where will the value be when loads of other people have entered the same market? Subsidy-based renewables, you know, I think you're, you're fairly certain of what your long-term return is going to be nice and stable. If you wanted a slightly higher risk, higher return potentially, um, then flex gen would be uh, would be the thing. And and for that, really knowing what all of the markets are doing, the intraday, the ancillary services, the balancing markets, all of these things, you'd need to you'd need to get a good grip on that stuff. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. But I mean, one thing you know that's going to happen is there'll be um, a lot more weather risk in the future. Uh, so a lot more requirement to manage the system. You know, if if you look, we run five weather patterns in our simulations, and at the moment, you know, the base load prices there's between a, a particularly cold year and a warm year, there might be a three or four euro megawatt hour difference on average. You know, in ten years' time, because of so much renewables, that that spread is opening up to about ten euros. So this this weather risk is going to grow. So anything that can take advantage of you know high prices or low prices will do well. Um, and of course, if you're looking for risk taking a bet on the weather <laughs> uh, you know there's a lot of money to be made if you get a couple of winters that are particularly cold um, of course we haven't had many of those recently but uh, you know when it when it does happen when the beast from the east does strike then uh, you know uh, five or six hours of 500 euros a megawatt hour can uh, uh, can really can really make the difference to a business case in a particular year yeah but we have had some tight periods in countries um, even without yeah, terribly cold weather with maintenance periods with low renewable generation. It's been it's been quite interesting to see how grids are adapting, electricity systems adapting to having more weather involved in uh, in you know the supply of electricity. Do you see that that's going to be a potential problem looking forward, or do you think it's ultimately quite solvable? Uh, I guess ultimately most of these problems are are solvable just because I mean the, the sheer amount of money going into a lot of these technologies. It's not you know we have a European focus, but uh, uh, both in the US and in, in particular in China uh, means there are a lot of you know, other potential technologies out there we haven't spoken about. I mean flow batteries being the obvious uh, other case, they've been knocking around if you like for for years. Uh, the costs are still too high. You know they don't get built on a merchant basis in any of our projections. Um, but uh, if there are some breakthroughs, for example, in flow batteries, it could again change the equation um, in terms of uh, in terms of viable technologies. So flow battery, fundamentally, it's about having the, uh, um, the, 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 the cost of storage, the number of hours of storage uh, scale is very, very cheap to have more and more hours of storage. So you can store, you know, for almost the same cost, you could store your power for 20, 30 hours as opposed to one or two hours. Um, and that you know that level of flexibility with almost no additional cost 
doesn't currently exist apart from things like pump storage, uh, which is again too expensive. So something like a flow battery, which could be deployed anywhere, storing for days at a time, could be could be you know one of the things that many people are looking at um, to uh, again change the picture. Okay, so flow batteries one to keep a one to keep keep an eye out yep. as they evolve. Uh, anything else that one should keep an eye on in uh, you know thinking about this future should should I be investing in uh, storage heaters for instance in my in my home and you know I had a bad experience in the past with uh, with night storage heaters I don't know if they're changing yeah I mean I think fundamentally the I mean what you're saying about night storage heaters is is, is, a, is a really good example of where there you know there are fundamentally two different technologies one is heat pumps which are operating at low temperatures and the other is you know resistive heating which is operating at much higher temperatures um, and of course the, the, the the problem, uh, well, the problem with your night storage heaters is they obviously you're storing at night, and therefore it's always cold. It's lovely and warm in the morning when you wake up, and then ice cold by about six, seven p.m. at night. Um, the problem with heat pumps um, is they they operate best at low temperatures, and therefore continuously heating, um, which you know it's fine because the temperature in your house is always your steady twenty-one degrees or whatever. Um, but it doesn't mean there's no flexibility whatsoever coming from them because they're best run continuously. Um, and if you turn them off for a few hours, it might take your house uh, quite a long time to reheat back up again. Um, so uh, yeah, so th there's again in 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 the uh, in the heating space, we talked about hydrogen versus heat pumps. But equally, uh, you know whether heat pumps will have flexibility in them uh, is still to be you know to be to be seen uh, because there are cost implications uh, as well as benefits. So you mentioned uh, that we look at a number of weather years is that the standard when people are looking at their investments in europe well we'd certainly hope it would be the standard i mean in reality uh, a lot of people take the shortcut and just pick a single weather pattern uh, and and as a result you end up with the, fundamentally the wrong valuation um if you picked say i don't know 2017 uh, as your as your weather pattern that was a particularly particularly windy year um and as a result if you're valuing a, a wind asset you'd end up with you know, more, more wind generation and therefore higher values. But of course, the weather of 2017 won't repeat itself for the next 30 years. Uh, so you really need to, if you're going to value a wind asset, you need to have a range of weather patterns and effectively run a, you know, each future year, run a random, uh, random historical weather pattern through it to get an understanding of both the weather risk um, and of course, uh, you know, your, your, your price exposure, your, your revenue risk. And you can also do that on a monthly basis. We've got these sets of weather patterns uh, and you can look at what your, your your revenues, your income will be on a monthly basis based on the, the variations in weather. And that's that's really important for cash flow management when uh, when you'll leave it up to the hilt for wind investment, understanding that even in a particularly still month, you'll have enough money coming in to cover your uh, uh, payment obligations to the bank is, is quite reassuring. So really a single weather pattern is really it's a really bad idea and you need to be looking at you know a, a, quite a range because ultimately we all know the weather is quite variable yeah and and changing over time as well do we consider any climate change impacts when we're going out to 2050 do we adapt our weather patterns at all yeah we do i mean we, we tend to pick up the at the moment we're picking up the bigger changes which is the expected increases in hydro inflows you know there are many other changes that are potential and possible over the timeframes to, so this is things like more, you know, greater storms, more more frequency of storms coming across. So you might get higher wind speeds on average, but uh, but more of that's in storms and you can take less advantage of it. Um, and of course, on average, higher temperatures. So 
more air conditioning load in summer and, and maybe slightly less demand in winter. But the reality is a lot of these effects aren't, they'll be small in 2050 and quite substantial by uh, 2100. So you know, slightly outside our, our range in terms of you know, financial models at the moment, you know, these effects are coming, but probably for a financial model, uh, they're, not, you know, they're not huge at the moment. But uh, obviously, if you believe that uh, four degrees is what, is what might happen rather than two degrees, uh, these effects will be coming much sooner. So the sensitivity to you know the cash flows from from those climate change uh, physical changes weather changes is quite small, especially I, I suppose by comparison to the range of our scenarios, the range of commodity prices, and particularly the impact that uh, carbon prices uh, will be having looking forward. Do you see a you know a, a happy future for the ETS? I, I mean, I, I personally do. I mean, I think as a mechanism it is. It's been repeatedly undermined, tweaked, changed, moaned about and so on. But it has kept going through effectively the hardest times when, when the price was in effect zero. And as a mechanism, it's, it just tightens year on year. It's this you know, continual pressure to reduce emissions. So uh, uh, the lovely thing about the ETS, if no one does anything about it, it eventually hits zero because um, it just reduces year on year as, as part of the design. And, you know, unlike government targets, which can be met or missed or you know, not aspired to, the ETS grinds on reducing carbon emissions year on year as the cap comes downwards. So I, you know, I, I think the ETS will, will survive and effectively keep thriving and the carbon price will keep rising. But, uh, but of course, governments are very keen effectively to undermine the ETS by financing and past financing renewables, forcing closure of plants and so on directly rather than waiting for carbon price to have that influence. ETS is highly political, of course, um, but as an animal, a beast as it is at the moment, it is, uh, you know, it, it, it's basically the backstop for everything that's going on in terms of decarbonisation across Europe. Mm, interesting. So looking out, to, looking out to 2030 and beyond, massive change coming, even in a world where we don't think we're going to be hitting the net zero economy wide by 2050, massive change coming, lots of renewables, lots of batteries, and then lots of electrolyzers, electrification of uh, transport, of heat, not, not obviously completely, but movement in that direction. What else? What else is, uh, is the future holding? Does that sum it up? I think that sums it up well, Matt. I mean, that is an exciting future. When I came into this industry 20 years ago, uh, I was thinking it was going to be CCGTs, gas-fired power stations forevermore, plus a bit of you know, a bit of wind on the side. Uh, the level of disruption is probably pretty much unparalleled in any industry. The sheer amount of investment required, the disruption, the change, and of course that you know the excitement, the potential for both saving the planet on one hand, and of course great opportunities for for investors and, and making investments in this in this new future. So. Uh, a, a fascinating and exciting time to be in the electricity industry. Well, thank you very much. Thank you all for listening. I think we'll draw it to a close there. This is Fueling the Transition, the podcast from AFRI Management Consulting. Please do uh, subscribe to get more episodes. My name is Matt Brown, and I hope to have the pleasure of speaking to you again soon. Bye-bye.